0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my friend Fawzia Kufi, an Afghan parliamentary lawmaker, an accomplished author, an internationally known outspoken advocate for the rights of women and children, democracy and moderate Islam. Fazia is the first female in the Afghan parliament to be elected as second deputy speaker, and she heads the Women's Parliament's Women's Affairs Commission, you know, until the fall of the, of the Ghani government. Her work has helped humanize the otherwise faceless international discussion of the struggles and abuse of Afghan women. August 15th, 2022 marks the one year anniversary of the fall of the Ghani government to the Taliban. And today we'll be discussing Afghanistan's present situation, particularly focusing on the dangerous situation for most women and girls and how the United States and others can respond to this terrible challenge. So Fawzia, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be affiliated with CSIS and to be with you.
0: Thanks, Fozzie. Yeah, so you are a visiting fellow with us virtually for the moment, and you'll be visiting us in September. I'm very much looking forward to hosting you at CSIS. You're a really important voice, uh, both on issues related to the rights of women and girls, not just in Afghanistan, but around the world. But you're an important voice that speaks for the hope of democracy in a number of different countries and including in Afghanistan. So thanks so much for agreeing to be associated with CSIS. And thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you once again for giving me the opportunity to be, as I said, affiliated. Um, You're a great friend. Um, well, you're right. I come from a political background. I was born in a political family. My father was a member of parliament who established many schools in our area, but he never actually wanted his own daughters to go to school because he thought that by doing so, he will lose the vote of the, you know, the community. I was one of the last child. after my father was killed on a peace mission also by Mujahideen. Then I um, we moved to the city and I started going to school, making me the first girl in our family to go to school. My mother was supporting me, but my brothers always thought that I should study up to grade six and then stop it because the moment I can read and write, that's enough for a girl. Their impression of education was if a girl can read and write, that's fine. But with my mother's support, I always, you know, stood against these odds and continued. I remember there were days like my brothers would tell me, you know, this is fine, it's enough. Sometimes even they would get my back, school back from me and hide it so that I don't go to school. But with all the struggles, I finished high school in Kabul, experiencing all the, you know, the the historical changes, the occupation of uh, Afghanistan by Soviet Union, the civil war. And then I was in the first year of university to be a medical doctor because that's what my mother wanted me to be that the Taliban took over. And of course it was like um, the life for many of us was upside down. I couldn't believe that I was no longer allowed to go to university. Facing a lot of challenges from my family, I succeeded to go to school, but now, To face a challenge from a government or a power that was controlling Afghanistan was, of course, not easy. Along with me, many other girls were deprived. Then I went to my province, started home-based schools, helped with back-to-school campaign after the fall, after the 11 September attack. I moved to Kabul, you know, continued my work with United Nations, but also my work on back-to-school campaign. In 2005, I ran for parliament. Uh, there was a constitutional quota for women 25 percent women parliamentarians were according to the constitution so i ran but i was elected on an open seat and of course many people voted for me because of my father's background but then the challenge for me was to prove my own identity so i really struggled and i stood for deputy speaker i was the first woman to be the parliamentary deputy speaker and then in t- 2010, I ran and I got a lot of votes all over Afghanistan for myself. So I managed to create uh, my own identity. And I think it's very important for women to have their own political identity if they are in politics or anywhere. In 2019, I got engaged in peace process. I was a member of the negotiation team, negotiating with Taliban until the collapse.
0: In addition to losing your father, you lost your husband. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, we got married in 1997, just like three days after our marriage, they arrested, the Taliban arrested my husband. You know, we have a traditional um, tradition in our culture during marriage that you put henna, henna in the hands um, of uh, bride and groom. So the henna was still in our hand when they took my husband to prison he was in prison for 3 months or more than 3 months he was tortured and he got tuberculosis from prison we tried to cure him uh, but of course it was difficult because when we went to badakhshan badakhshan was basically in siege uh, it was there was no possible for us to uh, it was not controlled by taliban but it was in siege so it was not possible for us to do a um, complete course treatment for tuberculosis and he died in 2003 as a consequence of the torture and and the tuberculosis but also many of my brothers i lost 5 6 brothers in in this war. A lot of my family members, like many Afghans, we are all victims of war.
0: What happened last year? Could you talk about what happened a year ago? I mean, I can kind of talk about it, but I don't really, I think, do justice to what happened. You were a parliamentarian. You were also part of the negotiating team working in Doha. So talk a little bit about the events leading up to what happened last year.
1: Yeah, so the Doha negotiation between the Afghan government and the Taliban started in September 2000. We were really hoping that we will come to some sort of agreement through a political dialogue, which Taliban will be included in a political settlement. When we started negotiation, the, the agreement, the agreement of Taliban with Americans was that they will not attack the cities until we get a result out of the negotiation. But we know as soon as we started the negotiation, they attacked the city. City of Lashkar which is the capital of Helmand province, was attacked and there were like war all over, all over the country. Uh, While we were negotiating, Taliban were trying to kill time. They were not uh, genuine. They were not serious about negotiation. In fact, some of the issues that we actually wanted to discuss as the core issues, they were always trying to bypass. Six, seven months of the negotiation, we didn't get anywhere. Last year in April, we started, when I say last year, in 2001, I mean, in April, we started some level of seriousness in the negotiation. Late March, early April, we started to like talk about what a future government should look like, you know, how do we protect our security forces, but meanwhile reform them because there is always a room for reform. You know, what about the constitution? Which constitution shall we implement, etc.? This was the time that, you know, we, I thought that there is some seriousness about negotiation and we will get somewhere. You know, uh, there was a plan for a conference to be held in Turkey where senior leaders from Afghanistan and Taliban and other g- countries, the region will come and the U.S. will come and then we will come to some sort of agreement. But unfortunately, that was the time that the U.S. president announced the withdrawal, unconditional withdrawal. After that, Taliban, like from April till August, Taliban would never, they were never serious about negotiation. They would hardly be accessible. They would not come to the you know, meeting room, to the negotiation room, etc. Uh, the, the whole environment of Taliban feeling victorious after, uh, you know, the announcement of withdrawal and their deal with Americans, On the other hand, inside Afghanistan, you had a president which was not willing to really be open to sharing power. He was weak in leadership. He was not connected. He didn't create a consensus, a political consensus. So there were a lot of political forces inside Afghanistan who wanted Taliban to come, but not in the way that they did come. They wanted Taliban to come and become part of a power sharing so that they also become another part. But on the 15th, we all know that I was in Kabul when in the morning you could feel that there is something going to happen. Kabul was basically full of people and traffic. People were getting out of their homes, but not knowing where they want to go and where are they going. Around 1231, the president flee. And then Taliban, of course, came. I think if the president did not flee the country the way he did, Taliban would never have been able to take control of Kabul militarily. But they took over. I was in Kabul for three weeks after they took over I didn't want to leave, in fact. I wanted to really be there, be with people. But the situation was in a way that it was no longer for us possible to do anything, any activity. So, yeah, unfortunately, Taliban misused the willingness. And they created a narrative that they have changed. The world seemed to believe that. But in reality, they haven't changed. And we know what's happening now in Afghanistan. So
0: the first Taliban government lasted from 1996 to 2001. I get the sense that the current government isn't that stable. There's a number of challenges. There's a food security challenge. There's been COVID. There's been rises in food and uh, energy prices. Yes, they have support from a number of external supporters. Is this a stable government? And could you imagine them, you know, not lasting for very long?
1: I don't think they will last for long. I don't think they're sustainable. Then let's remember that you know in the last twenty years, Afghanistan had a government which was enormously supported by international community, not only in terms of military support but also in terms of you know humanitarian aid, economical support, yes. different layers of support. But the fact that towards you know uh, the, the before the collapse, like in the last three four years, the government was basically self centric and did not really care about the people's choice and the people what the people want, etc. So they collapse and now what the Taliban do is they pressurize people, they oppress people. Uh, Any government by exclusion and oppression, I don't think they will last. And plus Taliban don't know uh, much about governing. Their government skills are outdated. I was in the negotiation with them. The way their impression of government institutions are completely different. For instance, they believe that everything belongs to God and they are representative of God because they are the ones who you know, deserve to be represented by God because they know more about religion. While even if you look at other Islamic countries, they are Islamic countries, like for instance, Indonesia, even Qatar, they believe in the principles of Islam, but yet they govern in a modern way. You cannot, like, implement your own understanding of religion over the population, while it is in some ways even contradictory with population with, with Islam. For instance, in their approach towards uh, citizens' rights, including women's rights. So I think they are facing many challenges. The first challenge they have now is the disunity. They are fragmented um, between uh, not only provinces, but also ideology. For instance, um, the Haqqani, a network which took over Kabul. They seem to be more powerful. They, their leader is the Minister of Interior. You have then the Minister of Defense, which belonged to Kandahar, and he is the son of Mullah Omar, the former leader of Taliban. The fragmentation is the first challenge. Second, the fact that they don't know how to govern, and they have not included all ethnic groups and all religious minorities. And the fact that they're oppressive towards women. Also, in terms of corruption, although I know there are many reports, including the World Bank report, indicating that they have increased domestic revenue, but I think we don't know where are they spending the money. There is no money so that they show that they are corrupt. So I think also in terms of the regional dynamic, we know lately they have started shifting towards that layer of region. We know that they are in close contact with um, China. The Chinese contractors go to Afghanistan. Uh, most often there is like untransparent contract award. To Chinese contractors. We know that they are very closely allied with um, Russia. For instance, Russia was the only country that actually accepted Taliban diplomat. So I think all of that makes them uh, the you know the regional complexities, etc. Makes them very very vulnerable. Now the, the the way forward is that they have to accept to form a government that is broad based, that is uh, inclusive, that is representative to everybody.
0: So one of the things I've always said, Fazia, is over twenty years with the support of folks like you, with a lot of hard work, many millions of children, boys and girls, went to school in Afghanistan. Something like, I don't know, at one point there were several million girls went through the 12th grade and entered even university. So there was an entire cohort of children who got at least girls who got at least sixth grade education. Doesn't that, and as well, there's also been a proliferation of cell phones. It was the freest media media environment of any country in South Asia. Aren't those sorts of things the kinds of things that lead to sort of changes in society, even in more conservative parts of the country who want to protect their values? I'm sympathetic to that. But also at the same time, have kind of evolved their thinking on things like well, we need to have girls in school or there's some there's major benefits to having girls in school every year, you know, it, it benefits to that and having access to technologies or, you know, open ideas to new ideas. Doesn't that make it more difficult for the Taliban to govern over time than, say, 25 years ago?
1: Yes, one of the major achievements, I would say that hardly we talk about this over the last 20 years or so, was like this societal transformation you have referred to, thanks to the freedom of media, but also education, access to resources, access to social services, institutions, having institutions like parliament, It has all led to a very transformed nation in Afghanistan. The Taliban are also in a very unique state of mind because if they transform, kind of melt into the rest of the society, they will lose the narrative. They will lose the fighters. They need their fighters in order to oppress anybody that they want. And that's why they want to keep to everything that they want to keep their power. And that's why, you know, they have gone very extreme when it comes to their measures against women. For instance, You know, girls' education is even, what the Taliban do is absolutely not Islamic. But even that tradition is changing in many parts of Afghanistan. I mean, we know that in Kandahar, for instance, there were many schools that were open um, in the last 20 years and girls were going to school. There is a university. Um, We have uh, female doctors, female members of parliament from those conservative, the so-called Taliban's definition of conservative ideas. So I think the Taliban have to make two hard choices. One is if they really ignore the population, what the people want, and the transformation of Afghanistan, do not respect the transformation, do not allow the women and girls and citizens, do not form an inclusive government, and continue to just protect their own fighters and invest only on them, keep themselves as a Taliban, and that way they will lose population, they will lose the public support continuously, and they will collapse. The second hard choice they have to make is that they have to stand with the people, respect the people's demand, allow women and girls to, to enjoy civic liberties, go to school, go to work, you know, bring human made laws in force because they believe that only God's made law is in force and bring those kind of uh, reforms. They will lose their, their foot soldiers. They will lose those who fought with them. And they were giving them this idea and creating the narrative that we are fighting to bring an Islamic country because the country is not Islamic. But many of those foot soldiers um, then when they came to Kabul and I was in Kabul, I met them. They were like, it is Islamic country. Women are wearing scarf. We were told that Kabul is completely like West. Uh, we have to fight and bring, uh, you know, restore Islam, while in reality, it's completely Islamic. So if Taliban continue to like stand with people, they will lose their fa- fa- soldiers that they need. And only the way that they can sustain power is to open, to open up for, for change. So
0: one of the debates going on in the West is should we provide foreign aid to Afghanistan? But if we do so, will that indirectly or directly support the government of the Taliban? How should decision makers in the West think about this dilemma of helping Afghanistan while indirectly or directly helping the Taliban?
1: It's a very important question, Dan, and I think it is a dilemma, absolutely. On one hand, you have a population of around 40 million people. 25 plus million people are at high risk of food need. The poverty is, of course, edge. And the Taliban, since they have taken over, they have issued 28 verdicts eliminating women's rights or minimizing women's rights. They haven't really issued a decree about poverty eradication or about uh, humanitarian crisis. I think it's the world's responsibility to continue to support the people of Afghanistan with humanitarian uh, need. They have to do it in a way that it doesn't support Taliban, but we know that it does actually support the rebel groups or the power, de facto powers in other parts of the world. For instance, in, in Palestine we know it did support the Hamas. In Syria we know it did support Hariri. Uh, but I think uh, this is one of the hard choices. The humanitarian aid must continue. There should be a strong monitoring mechanism put in place uh, by international community by the usaid as a main donor by UN. There should be a strong mechanism for monitoring to ensure that aid doesn't go to Taliban. In reality, it actually the Taliban benefited. But the other important question is the frozen asset. The frozen asset, of course, was to keep the currency value, the Afghani value. But we know that out of 7 billion, 3 point something billion is the decision is to give it to 9-11 victims, while we know that the people of Afghanistan are in fact the the victims of 9-11, as well as the Americans. We are both the the victims. Um, So I think that has to also be, if there are discussions about how to unfreeze that money, I think we need to really wait for a responsible government because the central bank in Afghanistan is not like the central bank in the US. The money should be kept reserved for a government that is legitimate and the money is for the people of Afghanistan. So this issue of humanitarian crisis is a very challenging issue. We need to continue to support the people of Afghanistan because then on daily basis, I'm in contact with people who really need support. They're Highly dignified people, highly educated. They don't have a job because Taliban have not been able to provide jobs. The World Bank report indicates that the number of domestic revenue uh, collection increased. But where is the money? It's going basically on Taliban security because they want to pay their own security as opposed to creating jobs for people. I mean, they need to be held accountable for most of that. They need to really deliver. Now it's time for them to deliver. But they cannot. And that's why I think we all have to use our leverage as international community, as politicians and as rights activists, as group of political community of Afghanistan, civil society, to pressurize Taliban to agree for a meaningful political power sharing so that there is a government that is acceptable by people and is able to deliver.
0: Fawzi, I think we'll leave it here. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I know we're going to be having you make some remarks at an event we're doing at CSIS. This is amazing. You're an amazing voice. You're an important voice. I'm so pleased you are with us at CSIS. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really grateful. This is amazing. Thanks, Fazia.
1: Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog